0: Good morning, church. They got a brother to come back, huh? Good morning. How's everyone doing? It's good to see everyone. Uh, For those of you who are visiting with us, I want to again say welcome to our family and friends uh, to the Harlem ministry. Uh, My name is Charles, and I'm going to be delivering the message today. I want you guys to join me in a word of prayer because I need it, and you're here, so you have to listen to it. Uh, But let us go to God in a word of prayer. A great and awesome God, Father, I am in awe and thankful for your amazing grace. Uh, God, we are so helpless, uh, even in the midst of our uh, uh, seeming strength, God, we are but dust before you. And God, you do not look at us as dust, but as sons and daughters of your kingdom. Uh, Father, we are unworthy. Uh, We did nothing to deserve such title and attention, but because you love us, because you are merciful and gracious, uh, God, you have gone to the very ends of the earth to prove your love to us. God, I continue to pray for our brothers and sisters and just for our nation with all that we are going through with, uh, you know, bombings and, and, and mass shootings, uh, war. God, there is uh, a, a real threat that is out there, God, but not just physically but also spiritually. Uh, and, Father, we pray for peace uh, in our country. We pray for peace on this earth. God, And we pray that you would use us as instruments of that peace. Uh, God, please strengthen us, God. We are, in our own way struggling with all that we see around us, God, and, and we are not strong enough on our own to do it, God, but we know that with you all things are possible. And, Father, we pray that today the words that are spoken, God, will be from you and your spirit, God, that you would move me out of the way, and God, that uh, through your message today, we will all walk away inspired uh, and challenged. God, to draw closer to you, Father. Again, these things we ask your Son Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's see how this goes. It has been a rough night. I can't. I can't tell you guys. Um, my son Aaron is was dealing with some kind of asthma. Uh, he had multiple attacks and. Uh, high temperature and fever, and so it was, and continues to be a long day. Uh, so I am surviving off of about three hours of rest and adrenaline, uh, and, and some tea. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, I got my electronics up here, and God willing, nothing will crash. Um, but I'm really excited today because I want to be able to. Um, all right, it, it should be on. Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys today, Uh, as this past September, uh, I celebrated 20 years in the faith uh, as a disciple of Jesus, and I I don't celebrate much, and and, and if any of you guys know me, uh, I'm not big on on celebrating things, I don't even really celebrate my own birthdays, Uh, you know, I'm I'm excited that, you know, I'm alive to, 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 to experience it, but, you know, I'm not the kind of person that you want to throw a surprise party for um, you will be disappointed. Um, but there was something about this, about 20 years as a disciple of Jesus, that being honest with you guys, it, it, it felt really special. You know, it felt very different. You know, there is nothing in my life that I've done for 20 years except be alive. And I can't even take credit for that. Um, and so to be able to say 20 years in the faith, it's something that I feel really encouraged about. You know, I remember when I was uh, a young Christian, uh, and you know, there were times when you know whoever was doing the message would would ask uh, people in the crowd and they would say, you know, who's been here? You know, who's been a, a, a disciple for five months? And you know, I would proudly raise my hand and and uh, say, yeah, you know, I've been I've been doing this thing for five months, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm glad that I'm still here. But then he would ask, you know, who's been here for three years? And I see people would raise their hand and I would go, Wow, people, people have been doing this for three years? <laughs> three whole years? I mean, before this, my Christianity was a week to week thing, right? Like, I couldn't see past a full year. And to see people stand up and say that, and acknowledge that they've been here for three years to me was amazing. But it didn't stop there, it would then say, Who's been here for five years? And people would stand up for five years, and I would just look at them and say, who are these super Christians sticking it out for five years and doing so proudly and strong? And then it got to ten years, and I was like, surely these are lies. There is no way, no way somebody could be doing this for ten years. But wouldn't you believe that people raised their hands, stood up, and acknowledged that they had been strong in God for ten years? And then fifteen and even 30. And what at the time seemed to me like an insurmountable number is my reality today. And I can say honestly that I could not have done it without the Harlem church, and that I could not have done it without God and his spirit. And so this, in big part, is a thank you to all of you for the support, the prayers, the encouragement, the challenges, They have allowed me to be here and make me who I am today. You know, as I reflect on 20 years, I remember things like hanging out at Junior Hickman's living room on 125th Street on the east side of Harlem. Some of you guys remember that apartment. And I remember being in there recording music because some of you may not have known, but there was a time when I wanted to be a rapper. And I had aspirations and vision of recording uh, music and Junior Hickman was, was doing beats and would invite myself and some of the uh, younger guys over to his house, and we would sit down in, in his uh, apartment and write lyrics, and he would make the beats, and we would record. And that dream did not continue on. Um, you know, Bills became a reality, and, but uh, I still love hip-hop, and, uh, and I, and I, and I thank Junior for, for giving me that, that uh, outlet as a young man coming up in, in the church You know, I remember late nights of video games and Chinese food over at James Warren's house back when he was a single man without a care in the world. I remember teaching first graders in the children's ministry who are literally now college graduates. Your kids. Some are even celebrating their 30th birthday. You know, Skylar, uh, uh, Connie's son, celebrated his 30th birthday this past Friday. We are getting old. I know, right? Like, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> I said, this, this boy is 30. I remember when he was five. I saw Kendall. Uh, you know, many of you guys remember Kendall. I, I couldn't even believe who she was. I mean, just this tall, amazing, mature woman, all grown up. And her mom has done an amazing job with her. I remember when a Maori had a full head of hair. I wanted so badly to put a picture of a Maori up here. I, 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 I want you guys to know that I, I have restrained myself a bit. But I just want you to picture a Maori. It was so thick, we used to call it a Spanish fro. That's how, that's how thick this thing was. A full head of hair. Sorry, a Maori. I remember having Bible dis- uh, discussion groups in Monique's house, Monique, who is now Monique McCullough, but this is before she knew what a Bob McCullough was. But I remember years ago, and she had these cats um, back when she had an apartment on Convent Avenue. Yeah, you guys remember those cats, right? Those are some cool cats, literally. Uh, I remember watching James mature in the ministry uh, as a young minister. I remember uh, when he saw this amazing woman by the name of Zalika Proctor. That was her name at the time. It was Zalika Proctor. And he said to himself, I must make this woman a warren. And he set out and did just that. I remember when Chris Bailey used to travel to the to church on rollerblades. If you got, if I, <laughs> yeah, it's coming back now, right? Chris Bailey used to have these rollerblades. And he used to rollerblade everywhere. So you guys got to ask Chris Bailey about those roller skates when you see him again. I remember Trini, Trinidad, before he had kids, uh, Trini was no joke. Trini was, a, was an intense brother. And I used to be like, man, who is this little, this little short dude with all this energy and intensity? But man, Trini was a ball of fire. And then he had kids. And I'm going to leave that right there. I remember uh, going on dates, and I remember avoiding sisters who lived in Brooklyn. So this is a little bit of confession here. So if you live in Brooklyn, you know you know what it is, uh, and it's not the sisters. It was it, it was Brooklyn. You know, it just just had some bad experiences. You know, I'm like, eh, I want to make it home tonight. You know, I, I got church in the morning. I'm still in school. You know, I got dreams and aspirations. And sorry, sis. You know, and, you know Queens, Harlem, you know Bronx. You know, we all good, but even Staten. But you know, uh, you know. You know, and I remember service in the parks. I remember service in the Apollo Theater, at the Victoria Five, House Church. I mean, I remember worshiping God every and anywhere. And it was an amazing time. And it, And those 20 years have been an amazing opportunity for me. You know, a few nights ago, I was uh, on my computer doing some work, and then I took a bit of a break and started to look through some old picture files and I stumbled across uh, a picture of my uh, older child, uh, Charlie. Let me see if I can pull this up here. Let's see how uh, technology is going to work for me here. This is Charlie when when she was just three. And I remember sitting and just looking at this picture. I spent about fifteen minutes looking at this picture and just amazed at how tiny she was at that time. This was her first day of school. And she was so excited, and she had this backpack that was literally bigger than, that was just about as big as her. It was pretty much empty, but she wanted to have a backpack, and she was so excited about going to school. And this is Charlie now, looking just like her mom, eight years old now, and uh, eight physically, but, but uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to this one. Yeah, this is the... <laughs> This is when it was all, you know, nice and sweet, and you know, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is different. This is different. You know, I remember, um, you know, my wife and I when we were, when we were dating. We we uh, celebrated 14 years uh, of marriage. Um, this was us when we were, when we were free. Don't we look happy? I know most of you guys have never seen me smile that much before, but that that, was—that's the look of a man who had no kids. I mean, you know that—that's what life looks like, people. And and if you are thinking about going away from that life, I want to call you to look at this picture, and then look at me, and look back at that picture, and you tell me what you want to do. But it has been an amazing 14 years. And my wife and I are still going strong to God's glory. Amen. Uh, And then at some point, uh, God decided to bless our marriage with a special surprise. This little guy, Aaron. And parents out there know what I mean special surprise. But uh, this is my son Aaron when he was uh, an infant, and you can see that, that little hand that's just kind of peeking out of the corner, trying to touch his head, that's, that's Charlie, so um, she wanted to get into the shot. And then this is Aaron now, um, looking like a real G from the Bronx, <laughs> hat to the side. But uh, it has been really an amazing, amazing ride. And as I was taking this trip down memory lane, you know, I was saying to myself, you know, what has happened in the last 20 years? It really has felt like such a blur. You know, the time that once felt so impossible seemed so forever away now seems like a flash. And in the blink of an eye, 20 years had happened. You know, if you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4, In James chapter 4, it reads, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or to that city. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why do you even, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And that was what the last 20 years felt like. In the moment of it, it felt like this distant thing. But looking back, it felt just like a mist, the way that James was describing it here in this passage. And why does James call our lives a mist? Is he using it to say that our lives are insignificant like a mist? No, that's not what he means. But instead, and when you read prior to this verse, you know, James is preaching a message to the church and challenging them on their behavior, their attitude and reverence for God. And he's driving home the point by saying that the time you think you have is an illusion of pride. The reality is that our time and window of opportunity is as short as a mist. And so what I wanna share with you today in the midst of the 20 years that I've been here is some of the lessons that I've learned in my 20 year reflection. Now, again, I have to set a disclaimer that I have not learned or I have not mastered, excuse me, these things. These are just things that I've learned and continue to learn. And so I want to be able to help share and impart some of these things with you. Some of these are going to be some free throwaways, and then we're going to park in on one particular point. So my first point in my 20-year reflection as I sat down and thought about the last 20 years of my life, and I came up with this, adulting is hard. Adulting is very, very hard. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, it says, You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. The Bible says, if you are young, (laughs) be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy. You know, there's something really cool and special and unique about youth. And adulting, this thing, is no joke. You know, there's a definition for adulting in the Oxford Dictionary. And the definition reads, adulting is the practice of being of behaving in a way that is characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of mundane but necessary tasks. <laughs> That's how the dictionary defines adulting the consistent accomplishment of mundane tasks, but necessary tasks. You know, I have so much respect, so much more respect for my parents now that I have begun to see what their life was like, that when I was a child just seemed so distant, but now is very real. You know, I remember adults telling me when I was growing up, take your time, young man, don't rush. But I said, no. I know what's best for me. With all this wisdom at the tender age of fifteen, these old people are just trying to hide all the good stuff to themselves. They want to keep this amazing life all a secret. You know, they get to go anywhere they want, right? They get to do whatever they want. Adults don't answer to anyone. They don't even get weapons. I know that's what we used to call it—weapons. Whenever they do something wrong. They go to bed as late as they want, and they wake up whenever they're good and ready. They tell everyone else what to do, and kids have to listen and obey. And if you are an adult in here, you know everything I just said was a lie. But we had to find out the hard way, right? We wanted to grow up so fast. We wanted to be able to do the things that adults did, and now here we are, and I wish I could go back to being a kid. You know, you hear the sounds of teens. You know, you guys are in an amazing place, a space of opportunity, a space where the world really is at your fingertips. Don't rush. Enjoy that, because this adulting thing is no joke. That was the first one. The second one is marriage is work. This was all part of my 20-year reflection as I sat there and looked back, and I said, man, this marriage thing is work. You know, I remember. (laughs) You know, I have made it my personal mission in life to warn anyone who wants to get married. Every time I see pictures like this, of some couple holding hands and smiling while they stare at each other's eyes and overlooking a waterfall with a rainbow, just glistening over the sunset, hashtag relationship goals, I give it an angry emoji because I said people need to know the truth. And these things are not the truth. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm being a bit cynical here. Uh, marriage is, is an amazing journey. But please, please understand that it is work. You know, I feel that it is my civic duty to tell you the truth about marriage If you see any married couple that you aspire to be, amen. See, see, those are the married people clapping right there. They they understand. If you see any married couple that you aspire to be and you want to know, how did you do it? All you got to do when you ask that question is also ask, and please be honest with me. Because that statement right there is going to free us up, right? It's going to let us know that it's okay to tell you what really goes on. Because some married people, they don't want to warn you. And they don't want to warn you because they don't really love you. <laughs> they they don't have your best interest in mind because they just look in your eyes and, and they and they and they see where you are, right? You you know you you all excited and you all happy and, and they just look at you and they say, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get him, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna find out. But marriage is work. You know you need to find someone who before they answer that question, they do this. Because they want to check that their spouse isn't there, right? Because they want to be like, listen, what I'm about to tell you you cannot leave this conversation. Run. No, stop playing. (laughs) Save yourself, no. But marriage is work, people. When you see happy couples, understand that that happiness took work. When you see couples loving each other, that love took work, it took sacrifice. It was not easy. And if you want to do the same, understand and prepare yourself for that work. And please don't tell my wife that I shared any of this. This has to stay here. All right? I'm trusting you guys here. All right, and my final reflection, and this is the one that I want us to to, to focus on here. And... Uh, you know, this is something for me that, you know, as I as I look back on those 20 years and I thought, you know, what is the thing that I felt, you know, really strongly about that was really important in this walk with God? And the thing that I wanted to share today, and the title of my message today is, Be a Home and Not Just a House. Be a home and not just a house. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to park here for... Uh, pretty much the rest of the of the message. When you get there, say Amen. It's not going to be behind me, so you're going to have to uh, turn to your Bibles or share with someone next to you. But in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to start this message in verse 14. Amen. It says Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. By whom do your followers then drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is with me, whoever is not with me, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes Seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You know, this is an amazing, amazing message from Jesus as he's talking to the crowd. And to give you a bit of context here, you know, Jesus had performed other miracles before this and after. But there's something very unique and special about this particular time. You know, other accounts of miracles, when you look in the Bible, follow uh, a very kind of similar pattern of kind of setting the scene, the nature of the miracle, and the focus being on the person receiving the miracle. You know, oftentimes Jesus ended uh, those miracles with a call to the person to make a decision. You know, for example, when you think about the story of uh, the woman who had been subject uh, for bleeding, uh, to bleeding for 12 years, you know, there are over 11 verses detailing all of the context of the scene. You know, what her background was like and how she had struggled with this illness. And then her journey, wrestling through the crowds to finally get to Jesus and then finally touching the cloak or the hem of his garment. And then Jesus responding and feeling that power had left him and knowing that he had been touched. And then addressing the woman, healing her, and then commanding her to continue on in her faith. Scene, setting, and miracle. But the difference here in this account, in Luke 11, literally in one verse, we're told about the man, his issue, and the miracle it doesn't follow the same pattern as many of the other stories and accounts of the miracles of Jesus. And so what we really see here is that this passage, rather than focusing on the scene and setting of the miracles, instead focuses on the response and the reaction to the miracles. And so here we have two groups who are responding to this miracle. Very quickly, there was a man who was mute, Because of a demon, Jesus exercised that demon and the man was able to speak. One verse. And in the rest, we see here that some people reacted by saying that it was the work of the devil or Beelzebub. And others in the group said, We need more proof. They asked for a sign. And Jesus had a response for both. You know, for the group that called the miracle and really the ministry of Jesus the work of the devil. Jesus simply used logic and reason to combat them. In verse 17 to 20, you know, he says, how can a kingdom be divided against itself? You know, what he's saying is that even Satan is not foolish enough to go against himself and that to do so would be assured defeat. Now, without being overly uh, simplistic, you know, there are different reasons, even today, while people still give those responses Despite the evidence of miracles in their own lives, they chalk it up as this is not of God or just look at it with disbelief. You know, over time, we use creative intellect and call it things like fate or chance, destiny or fortune rather than the works of God. You know, and I'm going to assume that if you're here with us today, chances are you probably don't fall in that group. But instead, what I want to do is focus on the group in verse six, in verse 16 that the Bible says, tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. You know, we have to be very careful not to play the games, not to play games with opportunities that God gives us. To see and experience his works as plain as day in our lives and then turn around and ask for more evidence is a risky game. You know, we often... We know uh, when often the real truth is that it's not about us wanting more evidence, (laughs) it's that we just need to make more decisions. You know, ironically, in this example, neither group actually got into a debate about whether or not the miracle actually took place. There was no question as to whether or not this man was actually healed. The real challenge was their response to it what were they going to do as witnesses to this miracle? You know, just like back then, as it is today, miracles are designed to prompt a response. You know, they aren't meant to just be a good story or a tale of how Jesus saved you from a a burning car or from uh, overwhelming debt. You know, what the expectation is, is that there is a response to follow God and to draw closer to him. And so I want to focus today on the second group and how we should be having the right response to Jesus in our lives. You know, going back to verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it returns, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. You know, the person here is described as a house. A house that was once a mess and disorganized and disheveled. And that the amazing work of Christ and his spirit was that it came in and put this man in order. That he took all of the years of built up sin disobedience, that he took the demons of our insecurity and of pride and immorality, the demons of unforgiveness and brutality, the demons of addiction and doubt, the demons of guilt and hatred, and by his mercy and grace, God not only for us cleaned us up but put us in order. And this is amazing and shouldn't be missed in any of this. And so Jesus wants us to get that. He wants us to rejoice and get excited about the opportunity to be spiritually clean and to be anew, not weighed down and chained by the consequences of our sin. You know, when I was baptized in 1998 at City College, you know, I remember what that moment felt like, to have made an effort to listen, to learn, and obey the word of God, to admit that my life was not right before him, and that regardless of how much I pretended, In front of others, I knew that my life was not pleasing to him. That I needed his forgiveness and the power of his spirit to forgive me. The people I hurt, the things I had done, I wanted those things gone from my life. I was tired of just existing. I wanted something better. Something eternal. And many of you can relate to those feelings. The feeling of enough being enough. And to know that he was waiting for me all along, preparing a path and an opportunity, it was more than I could have imagined. And it was the most frightening and exciting thing that i would ever experienced in my life. And if you want to make Jesus Lord of your life today for the first time or for the 50th time, then the opportunity is still there. There is still some time. Amen? And so the person in this story had this amazing privilege to experience that very cleansing. But unfortunately he stopped there. And so after such an amazing miracle, and, and mind you, you know, we aren't given a timeline of these events. You know, it doesn't say that the very next day or months later or that years had passed. All we know is that after he had been changed from this miracle, the demon returned. You know, we are fooling ourselves if we think that temptation stops when Christianity begins. You know, I'll be honest. After I got baptized, I hit a period of shock. You know, all the friends who I did all the crazy things in the world with, I thought, surely, if anyone would be happy for me, it would be this group. And I was thoroughly surprised (laughs) at their reaction to me. You know, the things that we did, it was no problem for us to hang out and do whatever we did. No conversation about it afterwards. But when I came back and said, listen, guys, I got baptized. I can't go out and do those things anymore, but we can still be friends, the looks were were very different. And I was very wrong about the way that I thought people were going to receive me. You know, not only were they not interested in following God, they hated the fact that I was different for it. You know, years later, as time has passed and we've grown, you know, our friendships have returned uh, because they really saw that it wasn't just a phase for me, but something that was very permanent in my life. But that period was a very shocking one for me. And so when this demon returned, what did it find when it returned? The Bible says that it found a clean and spotless house. But here's the other side of it. That house was also empty. You see, it's God's spirit that prepares our house. It takes all of that old furniture and replaces it with new and expensive stuff. I mean, we go from before the Spirit, Bob's Furniture, after the Spirit, Custom Furniture by Gucci. And if you have Bob's Furniture, please don't come and speak to me after this message. I was just illustrating the difference between Bob's and Gucci. I also have Bob's Furniture in my house. But you get what I'm saying here. God's spirit takes us and it cleans us out. It gives us all of this newness and prepares us for a different life. And it is there that when Jesus resides in us, meaning that we have a relationship, we're involved. He talks to us and we listen. We talk to him and he listens. We walk together with him. We seek to understand each other. We don't keep secrets, you know, like a relationship. You know, the times we spend in the word and in prayer, the daily struggle to fight for temptation confess our sins, to love our brothers and sisters, to hold no grudges, to lend without expecting something back, to treat women as sisters and men as brothers, regardless of their complexion, political beliefs, or any other differences. Those are the things that can only happen when Jesus actually resides in our lives. When we go from being just a house to a home. You know, the dictionary defines home As a place, excuse me, a house as a building in which to live and a home as a place where one lives permanently. You know, when we are just a house, we're just being a place, a place that is empty. But when we are a home, it means that something or someone resides there permanently. And that's what Jesus wants to do with us. Turn us from a house to a home. You know, but you can be a house, and you can have broken windows. Excuse me. You can be a home and have broken windows and stained floors and crooked paintings. You can be a home with no cable. But if Jesus lives there, then you are the home he wants to be in. But guess what? You can also be a house with beautiful shingles, brand-new furniture, hardwood floors, state-of-the-art appliances, and Jesus does not reside there. Today we have to ask ourselves, am I a house or am I a home? You see, the empty place that the demons returned to meant that although the house was prepared for Jesus, the person didn't really invite Jesus in to stay. You know when you have guests over, and so you straighten up because you don't want them to see how you really live? (laughs) And then they come over, And from the first time they walk in, and you greet them, and you serve, and you entertain, and you smile, and you're just looking at them, and the whole while you're thinking, what time are you and your kids going to (laughs) leave? Because I want to go to sleep. I must be the only one, but I can tell when I come to your house, I see the look in your eyes. You just want to know, when is this party over? But remember, Jesus is speaking here to people who were asking for another sign. And what he's saying here to these people is that they were indecisive. They were riding the fence, wanting to still do the things they wanted to do and make Jesus Lord at the same time. And Jesus simply said to them, no, you're either with me or you're against me. There is no gray area. And it doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter how many orphans you've rescued doesn't matter how many Sunday services you've been to, if Jesus is not Lord of your life, commander-in-chief of your heart, if he does not have the plans that you are following to prosper your lives, then you are not with him, you are against him. And in the end, an empty house that was swept clean and put in order will end up in even more ruin than before. You know, recently, I was reading a post about the Neverland Ranch. Uh, and many of you that are familiar with this, this was uh, the former resident of the late Michael Jackson. You know, I'm gonna read to you some of the, uh, some of the breakdown, just, just a bit. I mean, this, this thing is, is, is just really ridiculous, but just to break down uh, what this property looked like. So Neverland Ranch uh, is a property that was over 2,600 acres wide. That's over four miles. This man was sitting on four miles of property. There were over 100 employees that worked there day in and day out. The monthly gardening bill, just the gardening bill every month, was $95,000. That was the gardening bill. The total cost to maintain the house every year was between 5 to $6 million, just to maintain the house. Cost almost $6,000. There was a custom-built amusement park with rides, a $40,000 toy castle. There was a zoo that housed an alligator pond, a reptile barn, not a reptile cage, a reptile barn. Flamingos, swans, elephants, giraffes, llamas, camels, and many other animals. There was a Ferris wheel, and this was all on his property. Where he lived and where he slept, his mansion was over 10,000 square feet with an enormous pool. His master bedroom had a metal detector and a private jacuzzi. His bathroom had a panoramic view, meaning that he could see all around from his bathroom, and had a walk-in closet. Not the room. The bathroom had the walk-in closet. There was a built-in classroom in his house to homeschool his children. I know some of us homeschool our kids. uh, And at best, we have a desk with a couple rulers and a couple pencils. This man had an entire classroom in his house to homeschool his children. He had a 50-seat theater with a snack bar that included ice cream, machines, popcorn, candy-making, everything you could imagine. And this was even the bigger kicker for me, was that he also had a built-in hospital room in his mansion. And the reason that he'd built this hospital room was because, you know, when people would come and visit, there were people who would be terminally ill. And so he was able to accommodate them literally to the equivalent of a hospital in his mansion. But with all of that, here's the tragedy of this. You know, Michael Jackson, while he was still alive, moved out of Neverland in 2003. And to this day, almost 15 years later, no one has lived there since. A a house that cost over $19 to buy and over $30 million to renovate has been uninhabited for over 15 years. The only people who step foot on the property today are a few workers who were hired to maintain it. But no one lives there. How sad is that? You know, especially in the world when you think about all of the people who are sleeping on street corners. Here you have four miles of land and no one spends the night. But Jesus says, how much more tragic is our lives that have seen and experienced his miracles only to remain empty and uninhabited? You know, the question for all of us again is what fills you? What centers you and what gives you drive? What do you obey and what do you accept as truth? You know, what dwells within our lives is far more important than what people see on the outside. You know, when we don't respond to God, our opportunity eventually becomes tragedy. You will be filled with something, but the question is, what will you be filled with? And understand that to waver is to choose. You know, sometimes the issue is that we are more infatuated with new things than we are with things that are really important to fill us. You know, we love new cars, new phones. You know, it doesn't even make any difference what the last version was. It's the exact same thing. But the difference is, is that it's new. And so we want it. And there's nothing wrong with wanting new things. That's a, that's a great thing to want something new. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be renewed, but the problem is when we want to be new while ignoring or running away from the work it takes to maintain it. You know, we love weddings, but divorce is at an all-time high. We love to have baby showers, but sometimes struggle to spend more time with our children than our cell phones. You know, we love promotions, but we curse every bit of extra work that comes with it. We love baptism and restorations, but struggle to find the time to continually support each other through the journey of discipleship. You know, I thank God that 20 years ago, men like Stanley, men like Amouting, James, Junior, and many other brothers who are here today, who studied the Bible with me and walked me through this relationship with God, didn't get caught up in the newness of my baptism. You know, I think about the brothers who knocked on my front door and brought me communion when I missed service. Men who cared enough to sit down with me and challenge me to be better. They called me out when I was wrong and arrogant and taught me what I needed to know about loving God. Men who taught me how to respect women as sisters and not as objects and who showed me through the word that I was special and loved by God at times when I felt very distant. You know, I thank God 13 years ago that I married a woman who wasn't caught up in the newness of our relationship. Who saw my true self and didn't back down, but loved me even more. You know, only the blood of Jesus can accomplish that step. But the effort and the work surrounded by God's grace is ours to do. Our part in this relationship with God is to fully respond. And so what is the conclusion of this? And we're going to bring this home. I want you guys to look back at Luke chapter 11, and we're going to read from verse 27 to verse 32. It says, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowd increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth, To listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now someone greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. You know, the Bible says that they repented and turned their lives not in the response to the miracles but in the response to the message. You know, the people in the story that we talked about today earlier missed the opportunity to experience true salvation. And the scary thing is, is that the initial demon that left the man in the earlier uh, uh, scriptures, the interesting and concerning part for me was that the demon was not only not intimidated by the condition of the house that was swept clean and put in order, but actually felt emboldened to go and get more demons to join. You know, what is it about a person in the condition that is described in this story that actually excites a demon? This almost seems as a contradiction. Wouldn't you think that a person who was clean and whose life was put in order would be someone that would actually be intimidating to a demon, not embolden it? Wouldn't you assume that that condition would be something that a demon would not want to inhabit? But in fact, what a demon saw was a life of superficiality, which is a demon's best friend. Indecisiveness, being neutral, not being fully committed is truly a dangerous place to be. You know, 20 years ago, I couldn't have predicted exactly how things would have turned out for me. I didn't see myself making it to three years, five years, ten years, even the first year. But day by day and with God's grace and with the help of my friends, I can stand here today before you 20 years later. And the message that Christ shared to the people back then still applies to us that what is more important is how we live our lives and invite Jesus in to us so that we can become a home. You know, as his response is, and we're going to close out here in verse 28, in the response to the woman who had asked and said, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth. Jesus' responds back then and still is to us today. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, God wants us to be more than just a beautiful house. He is looking to make you and me his home. And if you are visiting with us today, I want to encourage and inspire you to take the next step to go from being a house to becoming a home. God loves us and is looking to reside within us, but it is the work and the maintenance that it takes to make the effort and daily decision that will allow us to take that next step and become a home. I love you and to God be the glory.